It's always nice to preach to a full house. Thank you for being here. Before I start my sermon, I, when I was, we were in the baptismal liturgy, uh, there's a certain amount of mention of Satan and sin. So I just want to say something about that briefly because it's important. In the original languages, in the Hebrew Bible, uh, Satan means the advocate. Satan is not a synonym for the devil. That's a later development. But I mention that because the power of suggestion to the human person is infinite. And so what we're praying about there is to allow God's grace and what the baptizee receives as a means of being able to access ways of resisting those things, those habits of being and relating that are not healthful and life-giving. And all of us, you know, sort of have difficulties. Sin in the New Testament is a Greek word, hamartia, which means to miss the mark. Sin means to miss the mark. It's a term that is used in archery. And so it has something to do with how often we strive even and we miss the mark and that God is there to hold us up and to be with us. And we believe again that the graces we receive at our baptism provide us with that interior self-regulation and strength to do that. It's a privilege for me to have been the rector of St. Luke's Church. This is the last sermon I'll preach here as the rector. And I'm so grateful to be in a parish like this. In 2007 or 2008, we elected a new bishop in our diocese, Mary Gray Reeves, who's turned out to be wonderful. And uh, a companion diocese arrangement was uh, was created between the Diocese of Western Tanganyika and the Diocese of Gloucester in England. And when they first came out, uh, at the end of the day, they all came to St. Luke's Church. And they were here, and there was a dinner for them, uh, for the bishops and so forth. And at, at, when the dinner ended, uh, the bishop and the other bishops and I and some other people from the companion diocese sat under the uh, wisteria in the trellis. It was very pretty. And we were all sitting around, and the new canon for uh, mission in our diocese, Jesus Reyes, said to me, gee, you've been here for a long time. How come? <laughs> I said, because this is a wonderful parish and these are good people. And I know from maybe... Okay, so that's why I've been here for 22 years. And also what I said last night to remind all of you that, you know, it's the people that we serve as the clergy who raise us up in the ministry. I've been a priest for 40 years and they're the ones who assist in the process of our own maturation. And so even in the, in the places where we need uh, to be tested the most. So that's an important thing always to keep in mind uh, moving forward. Uh, when I was installed as the rector of Christ Church Sausalito, the preacher at my installation was the then dean of the cathedral in San Francisco, David Gillespie. 
And at the end of his sermon, when he preached it, he said, I hope that God gets everything he wants from this man. Some of you may not. And for those of you who have not, please let me, I want you to know I'm, that I'm sorry. I wish you did. So that's always something that, that, that the members of the clergy carry with them uh, moving forward. So here's what I want to preach about. I want to speak about the Johannine prologue that De Archdeacon Weber read to you as the gospel. I want to say some things again about the four affirmations of Christmas, the 12 days of Christmas that are important. And then I'm going to read, if you'll bear with me, some nuggets from a wonderful essay that was written in the Sewanee Theological Review by Ellen T. Cherry, who is the professor of theology or one of them at Princeton Theological Seminary. And it's uh, uh, what she says are my sentiments. And it's about being an Anglo-Catholic. And I've told you before that in my personal opinion, that term has lost its meaning, and for good reason. But it is still something that points us to uh, an understanding of a part of the Episcopal Church that has emphasized the importance of the sacramental life and the relationship between worship and the world and how the transformative effects of this worship allow us to become the transparencies and reflections of God's grace and love that we're called to be. So the Johannine prologue, tell, you can memorize that and, and, and amaze your friends. The introduction to John's Gospel is known in biblical scholarship as the Johannine prologue, the beginning of John's Gospel, the first 18 verses of chapter 1. And in this reading, we have what might be called the Christian Dharma. Some of you may know what the Dharma is. Some of our Indian parishioners from India uh, know all about the Dharma, and they've told me. And it's wonderful to know. It means, about, it means about the ordering of the cosmos, how things are put together. So uh, that's what is being said in the, in the introduction to John's Gospel today. It is about the idea that a human being has become, or a, 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 a God has become a human being, has become human flesh. Father Thomas Keating, who I quote endlessly, said uh, about Christmas Day and the Johannine prologue, the, new, the Greek New Testament word for flesh is sarx. Sarx means the human condition, the incomplete, unevolved, immature levels of human consciousness. It means human nature in its subjection to sinfulness, missing the mark. Jesus did not merely assume a human body and soul, he assumed the actual human condition in its entirety, including the instinctual needs of human nature and the cultural conditioning of his time. Sarks refers to the human condition closed in on itself, fallen and not interested in rising. It is the human condition committed to biological survival for its own sake, 
or for the sake of the clan, tribe, nation, or race. There's a lot of that running around these days all over the world. Keating goes on to say that this part of understanding the flesh, the Sark's part, always circles around for the human person three energy centers. Security and survival, affection and esteem, and power and control. And these are the areas that you and I sort of struggle on a daily basis with how we can obtain some species of serenity and equilibrium in our lives. How can, in some way, the uncertainties and ambiguities of life come into surer and clearer focus for us? To become more clear about who we are and what God wants us to do, you know? Father Keating goes on to say the Greek word soma refers to the body insofar as it is open to further evolution. It is the human condition open to development. The word was made flesh signifies that by taking the human condition upon himself with all its consequences, Jesus introduced into the entire human family the principle of transcendence giving evolutionary process a decisive thrust towards God consciousness. Sometimes you have to understand that in a simple way. When I was a little boy, I used to talk to my grandmother, my mother's mother, who I was very close to. And I remember when I was about nine, I was telling her how upset I was at school and how there were people in school who, who I didn't think liked me and I didn't know what to do. And she said, Dearie, you must rise above it. <laughs> you know, I look like what? I'm as what? It's like that ad for GE when the guy comes out and says, I have a job. I'll be programming for GE. And one of the people goes, what? That's what I did. But you know, sometimes it's important to learn how to rise above it and to ask God for you the graces to to do that, to have the mind that was in Christ Jesus. You know, Keating, I believe what he says, it's a quote from some of the ancient fathers of the Christian church. We are not God, but our true self is God. And you and I are engaged in the process of, once in a while anyway, touching that divine center that exists in all human beings. Dr. William Countryman, the retired professor of New Testament at the Church Divinity School of the Pacific wrote a wonderful little book on the Gospel of John called The Mystical Way of the Fourth Gospel. And he believed and says that the purpose of the Gospel according to St. John is to describe something that Jesus had with God and by extension we ha can have and that's mystical union with God. Remember, the people that wrote John's Gospel believed that when they saw Jesus and heard Jesus, that they saw words and works that were indistinguishable from the words and works of God, and that if God were walking around on the earth, this is what he would be like. And further to the point, they believed that they were not watching some tableau, something that you could put your hand through, but a real human being. 
and that they could participate in what he said because he gave them tools they could use. Ways of doing that. Dr. Countryman says that mystical union is the experience of things or persons outside myself as direct and unmediated as my experience of myself is. At one level, this may be an experience of the order of the cosmos and of my place in it, in which case it is called mystical enlightenment. At another level, it may be an experience of full knowledge of another specific being, in which case it is called mystical union. Union may be understood as implying a complete dissolution of the human who enters into it, or may appear as the complete opening of two realities one into another. Now here's the thing. I've been a priest for a while and I've actually had people talk to me who have had this experience. They've had these experiences. And when I've heard them, I think about what the dean of my seminary said, the first dean, many, many years ago. He taught the class to the first-year students called ascetical theology, which is the 25-cent term for how to say your prayers 1A. Okay? And he said, in your ministry, you are going to meet people and hear from people whose personal spiritual life is far deeper than your own. And you should not take this in some way, uh, either be jealous of that fact or resentful of that fact or feel somehow uh, diminished by this. But give, give thanks to God for somehow being able to learn something and adding it to your practical wisdom. You know, some people define wisdom as the accumulated response to adversity. So what have you learned? And we learn it by listening to other people's stories. And some people have had some species of mystical union in their life. They've actually done it. And in John's Gospel in the beginning, it talks about that possibility, the divine light breaking into human consciousness. So, it says at the beginning of the prologue, in the beginning was the Word. In Greek, in the beginning was the Logos. Logos can mean word. It can mean thought, speech, account, meaning, reason, proportion, principle, standard. I like the organizing principle. So the organizing principle for us is the Savior. Looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, as it says in the letter to the Hebrews, the template that we lay over our own spiritual life and development and how we understand what it means for us on a daily basis. Not some kind of twilight zone -y stuff, but in terms of the commonplace and the ordinary that we live in our lives. So in John's Gospel, it gives us some idea of how the cosmos is organized through him, how the writer of John's Gospel thought about how that might be. So here are the four affirmations 
I'm not going to speak at length about them, but every Christmas I talk about them. They're very important. Some people say that the Anglican heresy is an overemphasis on the importance of the Incarnation. For Anglican Christians, Christmas looms very large. You know, Easter is the principal festival in the church's life, but the idea that Jesus became a human being for Anglicans has been big, and a lot of Anglican theologians have written about it from the jump, you know? So one of the things that they affirm, we affirm, is that it is that the goodness of our humanity. You know, it says in Genesis, God looked at everything that he made and called it good. That includes us. And we should thank God for that. That's the default position of how we deal with one another. You know, I try to get up in the morning and say to myself, uh, I I, I'm going to believe what, everybody tell, what somebody tells me, right? I'm not going to believe that they have corrupt motives. And I'm going to proceed in some way from there. We affirm that in Christ we can achieve the highest of our human potential because we've seen it. The eyewitnesses saw it in the person of Jesus. We affirm that it is possible to be joyful, and joy for Christians is the sure, steady assurance that the conundrums, the ambiguities, and the uncertainties, and so on, can come into sure and clearer focus for us. We will understand more clearly. You know, one, one of the things that I believe when I die and go to God, I'll finally get, find out why things are the way they are. Oh, right? So when I come back, as the promise is, we'll know. We'll know. Each of us will know in that sense. So let me say a word to you now about being an Anglo-Catholic and why I think this is important. And I'm going to use Ellen Chari as an example of this. She talks in her essay about, uh, at one point, whether we would like to be a pickle or a Pop-Tart. And she describes how in Christianity uh, there are two views, two versions. One is that we marinate slowly in the pickling juices and come into our full maturity as a pickle. And the other one is, is that we're toasted. You don't have to make that sound, but you know what I mean. As a Pop-Tart, which is the idea that once and for all, you Jesus, you believe Jesus is your personal savior and from then on it's smooth sailing, right? Or that we somehow need to go through the processes of how we under, understand that. So here's some of the things she says. Please bear with me. Whatever stance we take on what we believe to be the pressing social issues of our day, whether it be the crisis of the family or the celebration of same-sex unions, will not change this fact. We strike, as Episcopalians of the Catholic disposition, we strike a discordant note with the general public because of our style. We love elegance and beauty. We are out of step because we are formal and hierarchical in an age that values casualness and egalitarianism. 
Now that dressing down is regarded as indiscriminately appropriate and classical music stations are dropping like flies, we are plainly, pain, plainly a throwback to a loftier era. I became aware of this when I saw someone in grungy jeans and an untucked t-shirt who was hanging out in the National Cathedral on an Easter morning. This is my last Sunday, so I'm going to say this. You believe what you want to believe about this, but that's, that's the way it is. Our style reminds our culture of refinement and the dignity of reserve. We require worshipers to sit still, stand still, pay attention, read from a book, sing many stanzas of hymns, chant the psalms, recite words that we did not write, and participate in ancient rites that claim access to a reality that we do not create or fully understand. This is the counter to the instant gratification and constant novelty that our mercantile culture has taught us to demand. It is inhospitable to and fails to abet attention deficit disorder in any way, shape, or form. Thank God for the ret our retro values and practices. Although I am not completely sure that Anglo-Catholicism has done much to cure people of obsessive-compulsive disorder. <laughs> there is much work to do there. The Anglo-Catholic way of being Christian is minimally demanding in the sense that it is more interested in constancy in prayer than purity of faith, in marked contrast, say, to the Baptists. That is, the Catholic tradition honors the faithful simply for presenting themselves at the church, even if they understand only dimly what is going on there, coming only to get their morsel of immortality and leave. Attending Mass, saying my prayers, confessing my sins, giving alms, and filling my days with acts of mercy locates piety in a righteous, sober, and godly life. There is great sanity in the everydayness of English Christianity that does not demand purity of thought but constancy. Some people uh, go over the moon about you need to get right belief. One of the things we need to learn is that right belief is more important sometimes than we give it credit for. So there needs to be at least the openness uh, to that idea that we are in favor of this. Finally, I want to say something about what she says regarding salvation. No council defines salvation for the church. Our communion sits on the fault line between two interpretations of salvation, both of which have scriptural grounding and are present in the Church Fathers. The first view is salvation is participation in and union with God. The other is salvation viewed as atonement made by Christ for us. The difference is viewing salvation as the world's restoration, while the other is a response to the divine wrath. So I don't need to tell you, I think, which one I prefer. 
But actually, they both coexisted without much difficulty in the Middle Ages when all of this stuff got written down with some precision. And it's only been recently that we've had a big fight over this as being a, a real difficulty or a sticking point for some people. Participation, the participation understanding of salvation is about healing, the transformation of human nature into the fullness of God and union with him. At one time, these two theories, as she says, were held not in tension, but side by side. The Greek understanding of Christianity was deeply influential uh, with many Anglican divines of the 16th century. And they were taken with the idea of theosis, deification, of participation in God. I'm so happy that there has been a recovery of this understanding in recent times. Henry Chadwick, the great historian of the early church, in a wonderful essay he wrote many years ago, said, In short, the central Christian tradition affirms that humankind is not so good as to need no redemptive grace and not so bad as to be unable to benefit from divine aid and the deep therapy of sacramental grace. So I'm going to leave you with that. Think about it. The deep therapy of sacramental grace. It has been a privilege for me to be the rector here and to be part of the way in which we do all that together. But keep in mind the fact that the renewal of the liturgy is seeking to declericalize the understanding of what takes place. We're important. I think I am anyway. People are, you know. But the fact is, is that when we're together as the assembly, we are the ones who affect the change. We are the ones who make the bread and the wine become the body and blood of Christ. I'm merely the designated representative, you know. So without you, it would be useless. So thank you. Amen. Amen.